Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Support for Talking Art comes from Quad City Bank and Trust, providing consumer and commercial banking as well as trust and asset management. For more information, visit QCBT.bank or stop by one of QCBT's five locations. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Courtney Lyon, Artistic Director of Ballet Quad Cities, about the April 22nd performance of The Rite of Spring, Bolero, and more. Welcome, Courtney. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, of course, and what a timely performance of Rite of Spring, because spring is finally here. Finally. Yes, it is. And the Rite of Spring is one of the 20th century's most influential works. And Absolutely. it was yeah. And it was originally conceived both as an orchestral piece and as a as a ballet. The music was composed by the Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. But who was the original choreographer? The original choreographer was Nijinsky. And he was fairly young. He and Stravinsky actually were both fairly young and not really all that well established in their careers. They were had just been working for a number of years um, for the Ballet Russe. Um, Sergei Diaghilev recognized a talent in both of them, in both of the young artists, and um, brought them together to create these productions, namely The Rite of Spring. Mm -hmm. And it was originally performed back in 1913. 1913, While they were Russian, it was performed initially at the Paris Opera and created quite a stir. Correct. Yes, it's a fun ballet folklore. I assume it's the same way in the music world um, to know that when the curtain came up and there was the premiere of this brand new ballet and this brand new music that it caused near riots in the audience and that the audience was so loud in response to what they saw that the musicians couldn't hear the the dancers couldn't hear the music and so the folklore <laughs> is that the choreographer went up onto stage to shout out the counts to the dancers um, which that would be a whole nother thing because if you're familiar with that music, those counts are all over the place. The meters change. I mean, it's like really dense, difficult music. So I don't know how he was really able to communicate with his dancers to keep those dancers going. Apparently some things were thrown and it, people just thought it was like the most um, – like provocative or shocking thing they had seen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, very avant-garde. Yes. And I, I, it sounds like both the music, which has some dissonance in it, mm-hmm. but there was also something very unique about the choreography or just knew it was a very modern work. It was quite a departure from the 19th century style. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so the dancers, it was a huge group of dancers all dressed about the same. They were in tunics that came down to their shins, so it covered their whole body, kind of like uh, lumpy tunics, and they had wigs on, uh, long, dark braids, and you really couldn't tell one dancer from another, and their body postures were nothing that you would think of for ballet. So this was the ballet russe performing, so they're known for their la sylphide and les sylphide and, you know, um, all these beautiful works, and so the, these were dancers that were barefooted, their feet were turned inward, so their toes were almost <laughs> touching, their knees were bent, so their knees were kind of bumping into each other, their head was kind of lolled off to the side, maybe even like they were formless dolls. And then these human 
figures on stage were responding to the percussion that they were hearing, you know, mm. the um, which symbolizes so much, like uh, like uprest and uprising and like the earth thawing after winter and uh, the renewal of spring and um, harkens back to pa- pagan rituals and uh, Russian folk music mm-hmm. rhythms. And um, so it's a very, very bizarre to expect to maybe see a white tutu and some ladies on point shoes and then <laughs> and then seeing that. Right. It's hard to go back and think about what audiences would have expected back at 1913. And this mm-hmm. was right before World War II broke out. Mm-hmm. So things were changing very rapidly and it was a very tumultuous time. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the structure of the Rite of Spring a little bit. There are two distinct parts to this ballet. Mm-hmm. The first mm-hmm. one is is adoration of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, which which um, I think is celebrates uh, more of the creative power of spring. Is that how you interpret it? Yes, that's how I interpret it. Um, re- reading back on the original, of course, whenever I, I personally create something, I read back on the original and I really try to to learn about the structure of the music before I begin choreography and original productions and all of that. Um, and a lot of the themes of the music and the dance in the original had to do with traditions. So uh, calling back to ancestors, like a very tribal feeling, you know, people who came before in tradition traditions that happen every spring, you know, as a culture, as these um Russian pagan cultures, um, you know, have dances or um, traditions that they do. So there was a lot of like circling on stage, women like going in circles, very repetitive movement, very grounded, very like to the earth. So I that there's a lot of stomping and shuffling. So nothing that you would think of for, you know, like a pointed foot in a point shoe, but like feet like on the earth, on the ground, like being really connected to the earth. Yeah, so, so unusual uh-huh. for that era. And then yeah. it moves on to the second part, which uh-huh. is called the sacrifice. Uh-huh. Yeah, so one dancer has been chosen to be the sacrifice, which is a tradition of this this um, pagan ritual that one, sometimes it's a maiden, sometimes it's, when I read it's a virgin, uh, will need to die for the goodness of the quality of the crops and the goodness of the tribe to continue and to please the ancestors and and but there's something also so unique about that you know the idea of a sacrificial victim is so is so hard but but in this case the way that that person dies they dance themselves to death they dance themselves to death yeah, yeah. which which is just incredible really for a ballet yeah yeah, I think of it as like a self-sacrifice, like knowing that you might have to sacrifice something personally for the good of, you know, humanity or mm-hmm. the good of the population, mm-hmm. which is difficult, I think, to think about in this day and age doing something like that. Right. Well, what I'm so fascinated with um, is that you choreographed this work, actually the, all of the, the both of the pieces that are being performed, the right of spring and Bolero, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a second. How did you go about doing that? Where do you even start when you're considering the prospect of a of of unique individual choreography, something new? Um, the music was brought to me in terms of Orchestra Iowa had a desire to have three of Stravinsky's pieces choreographed. So their plan was to have the Firebird, Petrushka, 
and the Rite of Spring. So that trilogy, I guess, they all happened. They were all written, you know, right in a row, 19, I think, uh, 9, 1911, and 1913. I might be off by a year. Um but their goal was to have those three things played and performed back in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, and I was the artistic director. And so it was brought to me, you know, is this something you're interested in doing? And of course, oh my gosh, I would love to put together a production of the Rite of Spring. But also in my head is that like, okay, how the heck are you going to pull this off? Because it's known as being the mo- one of the most challenging pieces of music and one of the most uh, groundbreaking 20th century. It changed modern music. It changed dance, you know, the landscape of dance. So it's like, okay, <laughs> how am I going to take that on? Like, where do I even start? So I start the way I always do when I am getting ready to choreograph something new is I do a tremendous amount of research into the time period when the original composition was made and the original dance. Not that I will necessarily watch the dance itself. Sometimes I will. Sometimes I've had previous exposure, but I don't want to mimic anything. I want to really understand why it was created and then understand why that body of work has become has become a classic. Like what is it what what about it is universal that I can see through my own lens? In 2014, what about a pagan ritual and sacrificing <laughs> a woman for the betterment? You know, how, how can I tie that into anything that modern audiences will relate to? So that's how I start. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, I was very intimidated by the by taking that project on, but I was so motivated and hungry and because... I mean, it sounds dramatic to say failure is not an option, but knowing that I had the guide of the strong composer, having Stravinsky's music guide me through it, I trusted if I followed his plan that I would come up with a successful product in the end, if I really mm-hmm. trusted his music. When you're in this process, when you're you're going back and you're doing your research and you're initially conceiving of, you know, how you're going to portray this, this, this monumental work, how do you go about like writing down and preserving your steps so that you don't forget what you've already written. This is a 35 minute, I believe, yes. piece. Yes. So how, how does that happen? Well, when I'm preparing for the process, this might be unusual for other choreographers. This is just the way I work. I don't prepare steps ahead of time. I get a feeling of the essence perhaps of the emotion or the essence of the narrative or the it's like I, I want to whittle down the biggest thought to like the smallest thought so for example let's say Romeo and Juliet you can think love you can think despair you can, you know so I like whittle it down to like its smallest so that I can um not get overwhelmed so I can have like one product so I keep that in my head and then I go into the studio with the dancers and I ask them to start creating shapes for me so I'll say you know let's start moving with the elbow and let's do this and let's move this way and I'll use my words um, and every once in a while I will move through it but I really want to watch the dancer and see if their movement is giving me the effect I'm after so I don't need to act anything. You know, we don't use our voices at all um, when we dance. But so I want to make sure everything that person's body does is contributing to the idea of love or despair or fear. Um, And then so that's how I create the movement. Then that movement is really difficult. I can't just write down that movement necessarily. Sometimes I can write down 
like this score, like the structure of the score, like, oh, this is an ABA. I'm going to repeat this idea. Or I already know in my head, ah, this music sounds like this. This is when I'll have a new group of dancers enter. Like I'll kind of, I'll understand the structure. I'm like, I'm not going to go in blind to a structure of music, but I don't exactly know what it's going to look like until we are in the moment. So mm-hmm. I'm with the dancers and myself in a studio and we are creating in the moment. Then when it's time to pass it on to the next group of dancers, for example, this was first performed in 2014. It's not been performed since, and we are restaging. I am restaging it to go on the stage at the Adler this year. We have video, which is great. I've got a video from the theater, so I have a performance of it, and then I have a video from the studio, which I'm really glad I have that because that's from a side angle so I can see other details that maybe I can't see from the front, you know, depth of dancers and um, – you know, different things. And sometimes with a live performance, things go weird. And so you're like, well, was that arm supposed to do that? You're like, nope, they were making a mistake. Let's look at this video and see, you know, so there's, there's the video, which thank goodness, what did people do before that? Um, but then it's also, dance is really also a tradition that's passed down from from teacher to student or choreographer to dancer. And then a dancer who's performed it will pass it on to someone else. I mean, that's really for the past several um, centuries, that's how dance gets passed down. And really, that's how folk dance was passed down, you know, uh, you know, Greek folk dancing and, you know, Ukrainian dancing. And always, you know, that's how dance is passed down, like a which, community. Yes, which is just like the oral tradition, you know, with oral yes. storytelling. Yeah. Same thing. But in your case, you're passing down movement. Yeah. So it's like a movement, movement vocabulary. Exactly. It's an, <laughs> it's an absolutely, it's a vocabulary. So I do have uh, one of the original dancers of Rite of Spring, Emily Kate Long, is now the uh, associate or the artistic associate for the ballet company for ballet quad cities so i still have her on staff and so to have her present is so cool because Mm -hmm. she can help the dancers understand what it feels like to be in it where i see it from the outside she can say to them okay on this part you do have to get really low and you have to look out of the corner of your eye and watch for this guy to pass so you don't get you know bonked in the head or you know there's like little secrets that just help help when you're putting something so um, meaty together because this is a very physical very meaty very um, dense aggressive piece of choreography so Mm -hmm. it helps to have someone on the dancer's side like be able to step and be like hey move your finger a little bit or it's going to get stepped on in the next eight counts or you know something like that Uh uh-huh yeah well that makes more sense now that you're talking about it but um you know it's certainly video has been transformative i'm sure for your for the type of work you're in but um but they didn't have that no. in 1913 mm-hmm. when rite of spring was initially mm-hmm. performed and i read that the original choreography was subsequently lost yes um and yeah. it wasn't until the 1980s, 1980s i believe that the joffrey yeah. ballet somehow t- reconstituted through maybe letters or notes or Maybe mm-hmm. a photograph, maybe mm-hmm. photographs, I'm not sure. There is a language for dance called Lapa notation. It's not commonly used anymore, but it is still studied because it's part of the dance history. It looks like a musical scale. A musical scale goes horizontally. The Lapa notation dance scale goes vertically, and there's a series of shapes on that graph that tells a dancer where to place her foot, with what energy quality, at what level, at what speed. It's very huh. intricate. It's very difficult to really capture movement. Right. Very difficult. Yeah. 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 Well, it's fascinating. And and after Rite of Spring, you're also performing on April 22nd, Bolero, which was written, the music was written by the French composer Maurice Ravel. Yeah. Yeah. And how does this piece, this ballet that you're performing, how does it differ stylistically from the Rite of Spring? 
Um, the Rite of Spring, the Rite of Spring is a piece that when I created it, I knew it would be on a large stage. So it's on the Adler Theater stage. It's a full cast of dancers. So I believe there's 11 or 13 dancers. There's a a large amount of dancers that I'm moving across a large stage, full effects. I mean, the lighting for this is out of this Mm. world. It puts you just someplace else in time. You're underwater, you're in a forest, and then you're like in a sacrificial stone castle i don't i don't even i mean it's like so cool it's like the um stagecraft for this is like out of out of this world it's so gorgeous i brought some photos too bad your listeners can't see the photos (laughs) that we're looking at right now um but then the interesting thing about bolero is it's like 100 percent different from that bolero i choreographed in 2015 and it was originally intended to be just a small piece that I created on the side for a fundraiser, for Ballyquat City's fundraiser. And I knew this space it would be in, which was a small, not a small room, but not a stage, not a theater at all, in a in a, a room for an event where you'd have an event. There was a piano, there was carpet, there was a ceiling that wasn't that tall. And I knew um, the stance would be viewed from all sides from the people in attendance at the fundraiser. So I thought to myself, okay, I don't have the benefit of having a stage to elevate the dancers so everyone can see them. So I need to figure out a way to get the dancers to kind of stack up on each other and kind of get high in space so hmm. everyone standing around at you know, n- normal human level will be able to see the dance and not have you know other people's heads blo- <laughs> blocking their view. So that was my challenge. Um, and I was kind of just playing around with some of the chairs we had in the lobby of the ballet studio to see if I could get the effect I was trying to get of dancers being on top of each other, you know, kind of stacked up vertically instead of horizontally, as you would see on a stage. Um, and that's how the piece started and ended. And the strange thing is those dancers never leave those chairs. So I have four chairs touching and I have five dancers. Zero lighting is needed for this piece to be effective. Um, the dancers never leave this tiny, I mean, they're folding chairs that you'd get them at Walmart or something. Yeah, that's so interesting. So despite being on the Adler Theater stage, you kept that original choreography. Yes, yes, I've not changed a single detail. Sometimes when I go back to pieces I've choreographed in the past, I come at it with different knowledge or a different perspective or like, you know, I didn't quite solve that problem. I'm going to fiddle with that moment. I'm always going to fiddle with it, you know. Like Nutcracker, I always go into the Nutcracker every year and just like, you know, spice something up or solve a problem or make something better. But sometimes you do capture something the first time. And for Bolero, I don't know. I have it's 15 16 minutes long and I captured something just so perfectly that I have not cha- I mean the dancers look in the exact same direction as the original dancers looked every pinky moves exactly the same as the original dancer. It's like this really unique sculpture like moving sculpture of art that was designed to be viewed on all sides. It's I mean it's pretty hypnotic. Oh. Well, yeah. the original choreography was probably quite different, and I love how interpretations vary. So this was – there are some similarities to Rite of Spring in terms of – even though they're, they're very different pieces, but they were um, both choreographed by Russian dancers and choreographers. Mm-hmm. In fact, they the, the um, choreographer for Rite of Spring was the brother – of Bronislava Nijinska, who choreographed Bolero. So mm-hmm. that fa- that mm-hmm. connection is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's the dance world is very. We always say it's very small. The dance world world is very small. You're always <laughs> going to find connections between people. Um, and my teacher, who I had in St. Louis, was trained by Russians, and one of her teachers was Nijinska. So it's really ah. fun to to see how it's like a family tree of dance to watch it spread out as it comes to America, and you know, modern dance is invented in America, and it spreads out, and ballet and modern, and then jazz, and then tap go, and to see who influences who, it's just like musicians just like composers yeah Yeah. and Nijinska did emigrate to the United States yes I think yes yeah afterwards so Mm -hmm. and um and that piece was originally performed in Paris as well but in 1928 so then between the two world wars it was just such a tumultuous time yeah you know wasn't it well um I am so interested in your background we're very thankful that you're here in the Quad Cities where did you do your earlier training where did you where did you study I studied in St. Louis. I studied at the Ballet Conservatory of St. Louis with Nathalie Levine, and she was the most important person in my upbringing in terms of dance that really offered structure and an understanding of the development of the art form and an appreciation really and like integrity for the art form. So it's not a school where you compete by any means, you know, where you compete for a trophy or you, you know, you do that. I mean, we are really studying the art form of ballet and it imprinted on mm-hmm. my soul. And I knew from the various early age that it's what I wanted to do for my entire life's career oh. before I even understood that you could do it, you know, for how, a job. How early, how young were you when you started? I how started dancing, it? my very first class, I think I was two and a half at the local YMCA thinking I was hot uh-huh. stuff. You know, I just thought, it, I don't know. I just remember walking into that dance room and being like, this is for me. And then when my mother understood, I have three sisters who also danced. When she understood that we really did, we were drawn to it and it was something to be taken seriously, she researched and found a good art school for us to go to. So I'm very lucky to have the conservatory um, for me as I came all the way up through my high school. And then after high school, you came to the University of Iowa. Yeah, that's how I ended up in this region. I came to the the University of Iowa because there was a woman there named Francoise Martinet, who actually was one of the original members of the Joffrey Ballet. So she is a part of ballet Mm -hmm. history as well. Um, And she was a professor at the University of Iowa. And I was really motivated to come study from her. Um, And then unfortunately, she retired about halfway through my undergraduate degree. And then I got exposure to other really influential people in the dance world who I then trained Uh from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then when did you join Ballet Quad Cities? I joined Ballet Quad Cities in 2000. um, And when I came, to me, it's kind of a fun story because I knew the director because she was getting her master's at Iowa when I was getting my undergraduate degree at the University of Iowa, Johanna Yalkeln. And they had a dancer who... They needed one position filled temporarily, like for one show. So she called me. I think I was in St. Louis at the time. She called me. She said, can you come up and do this? It's Coppelia. It was going to be at the Capitol Theater in 2000. She said, can you come up and do the show? I said, great. So I came up and I did the show. And I loved the company because Mm -hmm. it was a brand new company. And everyone, part of the company, was really committed to it. And I had had some experience working with some larger, more established companies. And the feeling I got from being in the Quad Cities with this kind of like emerging small group 
was something that was really satisfying to me. I felt like my presence had a more immediate effect on the art form because I felt like I was part of something really special. And so I decided to stay. Um, Luckily, I was offered a full contract for the next season, and I stayed, and I think I danced for seven more full seasons until I felt like my time as a performer, not that it wasn't enough for me, but I just felt like there were other things in the art form I wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. So is that when you transitioned to choreography? Yes. Mm. Jody Cook, who is the founding director and the CEO, um, talked to me when I told her, I said, you know, I think, I think I'm done performing. And she said, are you sure? You know, I really want to make sure you're sure before you walk away from this, because once you're out, it's hard to get back in. It's just really tough physically. And I said, no, I, I'm pretty sure, but I didn't want to go anywhere. And so she started giving me little opportunities to have hands-on experience more in the administrative side and more in the office, or she'd give me little projects to choreograph or, um, and I, up until that point, I hadn't choreographed and I hadn't taught. I had many, many classes in them, many workshops, but I wanted my focus was on performing. So when I, you know, got my head out of the clouds and thought, oh no, I better figure out how to do this. And I told her, I said, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a choreographer. I don't know. I'll do, I'll do my best, but you may want to keep looking for someone else. And <laughs> she loves that story and she still laughs about it. That to this day I can't imagine doing anything else but choreograph. Yeah, yeah. And I love to teach. So I really love teaching students. So I'm fortunate that I can teach in the school at Ballet Quad City School of Dance. So I have exposure to the young artists in our community who are up and coming. And then I get to work with the professional dancers of Ballet Quad Cities every day in the studio. And then I get to choreograph. Well, we are so lucky to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Courtney Lyon, thank you for talking today. Thank you. Don't miss the upcoming production of The Rite of Spring, Bolero, and more by Ballet Quad Cities on Saturday, April 22nd. Performances will be held at both 2.30 and at 7.30 p.m. at the Adler Theater in Davenport. For more information, visit BalletQuadCities.com. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.